0: So as uh, we've already stated a couple times this morning, and by looking at the uh, pews next to you, we know that we are in the middle of uh, Memorial Day weekend. Um, School is out. Look over here. School is out. Um, The pools are open. That's what we always look forward to um, in the summer. As, As kids, whenever school would get out and the pool would open, we'd be able to go swimming and those magical days in between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Um, and the, the the celebration, the occasion itself of Memorial Day is intended to be one where we stop and we pause and we remember those who have fought for our freedom, who have served our country and paid the price of their lives so that we could even be sitting in here this morning together, that we could be united in worship so that we could live in freedom, and and freedom of speech, and freedom of action, and so that we could live in this great land that we live in. People have paid the price of their lives so that we could do that. And that's what Memorial Day is. This is what we do, is we remember. It's a call for remembrance. Even driving to uh, the church this morning, you know, I'm driving down Columbiana, and I see the flags that are in the middle of the the road, and I'm reminded. There is someone who's paid a price uh, for our freedom. There are men and women who have paid the ultimate ultimate cost. I um, was talking to my my parents yesterday uh, just on the phone, on the computer. My kids Skype with them on the weekends, and we were talking about their parents. We were talking about my dad's dad and my mom's dad, and um, they both voluntarily served in, uh, in World War II. And I asked if they talked about it much. Like, was this something that um, that they knew memories of their parents whenever they served? And they said, you know, like I can tell you just some bare bare minimum things. My dad's dad, he was on the USS Missouri. He served in the Navy um, whenever uh, the Japanese signed the treaty um, uh, of surrender and or to, to end their their aspect of World War II. And and he talked about how my grandfather was homesick and how he wanted to be home and how it was a really difficult time for them. And I said, you know, whenever he was back and either grand- did they talk about their service? Did they talk about friends? Did they talk about their experiences? And both of my parents said, you know, it was, a, it was really difficult for them. Service for them was hard. They were young. They had friends. They, they lost friends. They knew the price paid for, paid for our freedom. But I think often when we um, when we come to Memorial Day weekend, we look at Monday as this great free holiday that we get to go. And, and there are many of you that are watching, uh, uh, worshiping with us this morning over over live stream because you're at the beach, you're at the lake house. And we look at it as a time to go and to celebrate and to take a day off work and to rest. And all those things are good. All those things are good. But whenever we our our, our country instituted The idea of Memorial Day, it was to remember, it was to celebrate, that we would become in this habit of remembering those who have gone before us who have paid the price for our freedom. That every May, May, whenever Memorial Day would roll around, we would be in this habit of stopping and remembering, of stopping and remembering, of stopping and remembering. That we would never forget that there are men and women who have fought and died and paid a price. This idea of remembrance is something that um, I think is, is easy for us to kind of give nod to, to say, yes, we should remember. There are men and women who have gone before us, but we also know that we live in a world and in a culture where even remembering kind of the things that we have to do from day to day is difficult by itself. We have a hard time because culture is moving so fast. The pace of our lives are moving so fast. Sometimes we even like we just forget basic things like remembering to take our children home from church. You've got them, I've got them. No, they're they're still at the church. Um, remembering what we need to pick up while we're at the grocery store. Remembering that we need to call, that we need to care, that we need to turn in, that we need to submit registration. We have a hard time remembering just basic day-to-day things in life. It's hard. It's difficult. The awesome thing is that we know that God knows this about us. He knows that we are forgetful. We know this just from the basic um, uh, content of Scripture. If you look at the Old Testament, the idea of remembrance is something that God built in over and over and over again. He wanted his people to remember his faithfulness, to remember his care, to remember that he's a God who is with them, who would fight for them, and then he would fight for them again. Think about even um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. God's people, Israel, they have left, been taken out of bondage and slavery um, in Egypt, and they're in the desert, and they're wandering around. And Moses is leading God's people. And he goes through Deuteronomy. It's this kind of like long speech right before they cross into the land that God has promised his people. And he tells him, he says, remember these things, remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Teach them to your kids when they stand up, when they lie down, when they walk by the way, when they're basically any facet of life, remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Let these things that you do be a trigger to remember to remember God's faithfulness. Before they crossed over into the promised land, God instructed his people that they would pick up these large boulder stones and that they would collect them on the other side of the river. And that so for generations to come, when kids walked by, they would say, what is that? What are those stones doing there? And it would be a time to remember the faithfulness of God, that he works for the good of his people and ultimately he works to make his goodness known. God desires that we remember. He wants it built into the habit of our lives, that we remember his faithfulness, that we look back to his faithfulness and we look forward to his faithfulness. Even as God called his people to remember over and over and over again before Christ had came, when when he's taking care of his family, Israel, he tells them to remember over and over again, but he's always saying, remember God's faithfulness and look forward to God's faithfulness. And ultimately, God's faithfulness His care for his people is met exclusively in Jesus. That God cared for his people, that he cares for us ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. That the issue that we have in life is not just our ease or our own um, gaining of peace, but the main issue that we have in life is that we are born into this world in opposition to God, caring nothing about him, living in offense toward him having offended him. Now, this is the case because our our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin entered into the world, offense toward God entered into the world through them. But we've lived in that habit, we've lived in that condition on our own. From the minute that we're born, we're in offense toward him. And God knew, just as he was showing his faithfulness to the people of Israel, how he made provision for relationship to be made right, that ultimately that relationship would have to be made right once and for all, and that it would be done through his son, Jesus Christ. So even as God called his people, Israel, to remember the faithfulness of God, he was always pointing toward his future faithfulness in Jesus Christ. That when Jesus would come to earth, that he would take that offense, that sin, that wrongdoing, our lack of care, our hostility toward God, that Jesus would take all of those things on himself, my sin that is offense to him, my, my lying, my envy, my greed, my selfishness, my self-orientation, that Jesus would take all of those things upon himself. After living in perfection, that he would die on a cross, that he would pay the penalty, take the punishment for my sin. He would raise from the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, giving hope and forgiveness for all who would trust in Christ. So as God called his people to remember his faithfulness, to look back at his faithfulness, he also called them to look forward. And then ultimately, God's faithfulness to humanity is met in the person of Jesus. And this is something to be remembered. Jesus even, he, he kept up with his father's pattern when he was with his disciples on the earth. He would do the same thing. Think about just kind of some basic situations in the gospel. Even uh, before Jesus was to go and be crucified, he was spending time with his disciples, with his friends, his followers. And they were eating a meal together, a meal that God intended to be a meal of remembrance, the Passover meal. Jesus is eating this meal with his friends, and he takes some of these elements. He takes the bread, and he takes the wine, and he says, this bread, it's like my body, it's going to be broken for you. And this, this wine, it's like my blood, it will be shed for you. So eat this bread and drink this wine, and as often as you do this, do it in remembrance, remembering me. Now the disciples, they've heard Jesus talk about how he was going to give his life for them, but here Jesus takes these tangible things, and he's saying, hey, remember what's about to come. Remember what is about to happen, that I'm giving my life for you. Jesus even tells his disciples when they are, um, when they're in the community, they're in, in villages, they're traveling from place to place, and people are over and over, they're bringing their troubles, bringing their concerns to Jesus, their sickness, um, their, uh, the sickness of, of individuals, their, cares and concerns. And Jesus is offering hope. He's offering forgiveness. He's offering freedom. And what Jesus tells his disciples, remember these miracles. Remember what I do. Remember what I have done. Jesus is calling them to remembrance over and over again. He even tells them before he dies, he says, remember that there is purpose in what is about to happen. Remember, 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 remember. And this morning we're going to plant in, um, in a passage in, in, in John chapter 16. But go ahead and open up your Bible or flip there on your phone real quick. Um, John chapter sixteen, the end is where we're going to plant. But look at John chapter fourteen through sixteen specifically. So um, in John chapter thirteen, Jesus is with his disciples, he's in the upper room, um, he is uh having this Passover meal with them. Um, he names the one who will betray him, that Judas Iscariot would be the one that turned him over to the authorities and would betray him um, even even for his own gain, for his own money. And then he goes on to what is called the farewell discourse. This is what John chapter 14 and 17 means. This is, this is Jesus's, I'm about to go, and I'm going to tell you about what's about to happen. Okay. So John 14, 15, 16, it's Jesus talking to his disciples. And then John 17, Jesus prays this really beautiful prayer for his disciples, and even for those who would come after his disciples that would choose to follow Jesus. So he uh in this farewell discourse he tells them several things. And if you just even look at the headings as you're kind of flipping through scripture in 14, 15, 16, you'll see a couple things. Jesus tells his disciples that he is about to die, that he is leaving. Okay, and this has got to be really difficult for his disciples to hear. These are men who have literally given their lives, their careers, some of them left their families um, to go and to follow Christ. They've been all in for the past three years. And they get to this point where Jesus says, I'm about to leave you. Even the beginning of John chapter 14, he says, I'm about to leave and I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. You may be in that place that I prepare. So he says he's going to die, that he's leaving. Um, He also says that he will come again. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit, the helper, would come and he would bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus has taught them during his time here on earth. He even says that it is good for the disciples that Jesus would go. It's good that I go, but because I go, the helper's going to come, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to teach you, he's going to remind you of all the things that I've taught you. He tells them that they should lean in toward peace and not toward despair, which I'm sure is the opposite of what was going on in their minds as they're hearing Jesus say these things. Jesus is speaking words to them, giving them a foreshadowing, telling them directly what's about to happen. And I'm sure all sorts of turmoil and despair and anxiousness was stirring up in them. I've, I've given everything to follow him, and now he's telling me that he's he's leaving me, he's going, he's going to make a place for me. He tells them not to lean toward despair, but to lean toward peace. He tells them that they should remain dependent on him. John chapter 15, I love the imagery in this passage where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, that life is dependent on Jesus, that they should be dependent on him and love one another. Then as he gets toward John chapter 16, he tells them that things are going to get really difficult, that things are really difficult and that they're going to want to give up and quit. But Jesus encourages them, And he tells them to take courage because he has overcome the world. So Jesus tells them all these things. He gives them words to remember. And why does he do this? Why is he painting this picture of what is about to happen? And that that actually, even the record, the account of Scripture, it tells us that all these things that Jesus said was going to happen, that they actually happened. That Jesus did die, that he, um, that there was despair among the disciples, but that the Holy Spirit did come as we see in Acts on the day of Pentecost. That they did lean toward peace instead of despair because we see the spread of the gospel through their lives. But, but, but why did Jesus tell them this? Why did he give them these words to remember? It's almost like he's, he's given this advanced screening of this movie that is his life. And he's saying, you get to watch it. I'm going to tell you beforehand. But I'm going to tell you so that you would believe, so that you would take heart. This idea of taking heart is something that was very important to Jesus, even in these three passages of Scripture that we were just kind of briefly moving through this morning. Jesus says it at the beginning of John chapter 14. He says it in the middle of John chapter 14. He, he says these words that he, um, he, that the disciples should take heart that their hearts should not be troubled, that they should believe in God and believe also in him. That's John 14:1. John 14:27. this is awesome. Jesus says to his disciples, after all that he said about what's going to happen, or, or all he continues to say, the peace of Christ is what he leaves with them. His peace he gives to them, not as the world gives peace, peace that's fleeting and circumstantial. Jesus says, let your hearts not be troubled. Let them not be afraid. And then we land in John chapter 16, 33. John sixteen, thirty-three says, I have said these things to you, all that Jesus has said before that. John fourteen, fifteen, beginning of sixteen, all these things, the future I have told you, that in me, in Jesus, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we see several things in this passage this morning as Jesus is talking to his disciples. And, and what he told them is he's telling them to take heart and he's reminding them of the peace that comes in him. It is it's circumstantial to them, right? They literally were about to go through a difficult time of tribulation. The majority of them were going to give their lives for the sake of the gospel, reaching the nations and all people. It was going to be horrible. There was going to be... Uh, mass violence and harm caused to Christians, to people that were following Christ. And Jesus is saying this world is going to be filled with tribulation. It's going to be filled with trouble specifically to their situation. But but this truth that Jesus is saying when he says the world will be filled with with tribulation, be filled with trouble, is not just specific to their lives in their time, but it's true for us today. I don't have to dive deep into that to, to remind us of, of of the world that we live in or the lives that we live. Uh, I mean, all I have to do is uh, pull up my, my Twitter feed or look at the news or turn on the radio, and I'm reminded of these crazy things that are going on all over the world. I mean, things that you're like, how is this actually happening? How have we gotten to this place where things are actually this bad? And this is just on a broad scale. But then just even think about our own lives, not just what we're reading in the headlines of the news, but what we experience on a day-to-day basis. We live in a world where we experience trouble, where we experience difficulty. We're wrought with sickness. We're troubled in trying to make decisions for our aging parents. We're trying to figure out what to do with broken relationships. We don't know what to do when we've lost, lost our jobs. We don't even know how to, how to correct or right the ship when we feel like our parenting or our marriage has gone to the side. We live in a world where we understand trouble. We understand tribulation. We understand difficulty. And I don't have to peer into your mind and lead, read the list or even that number one thing that popped to the front of your mind whenever we started talking about difficulty. We can all resonate with that, that in this world we're going to have trouble. What Jesus says here, he says three main things for us this morning. As he says them to the disciples, he says them to us. The first thing is, we see, I have said these things to to you that in me, in me you may have peace. We see first that Jesus is the source of peace. Jesus himself is the source of peace of peace. Now, when Jesus talks about peace, he is not talking about peace that that, that is a band-aid, that is a fix, that's like super glue, that's going to take whatever difficult situation we're living in or whatever national or international headline that we're reading, and he's the one that is going to infuse tangible, see with your eyes, feel with your hands, peace. But the peace that comes from Christ is peace that's even past that situation. Sometimes the peace that we experience in Christ is resolution. It's restoration of broken relationships. It's wisdom in terms of how to right wrongs that we have, have experienced or, or been a part of. It's, it's healing that comes from, from death and disease. Even if it's not the physical healing, it's the understanding of God's moving before us, that, that Jesus is the source of peace. He says, I've said these things to you, that, that in me, in Christ, you may have peace. Even that idea of being in Jesus, I love the way that he gives us this this example for us in Scripture. I kept trying to think of, like, what's a way that we could illustrate the idea of being in Christ? But Jesus does this in John chapter 15. That's what he says. Now, when John is when John is writing uh, what Jesus has said in John chapter 15 about being the Jesus being the vine, and and us being the branches, they were living in a society where they totally got it. They could think about a vineyard, and they could think about vines and grapes and branches, and they could be like, "Yeah, I get it. Being in Christ, uh, I'm connected to Him." But even for us today, you know, Holly and I are in the process of figuring out what to do with the the front of our house and what kind of bushes and plants to plant and all that kind of thing. And and I am by far from a a horticulturalist or somebody who even understands basic landscaping. I can mow my yard, and that's about it. But I understand the way that a basic plant system works, that these branches that come off of a trunk, these branches that come off of a vine, if I cut that branch off, what's going to happen to it? It's going to die. The leaves are going to wither up, the fruit's going to turn bad. There's going to be no life left inside of it. And in John chapter 15, that's what John is saying. He says, "I am the vine, and you are the branches." He is the one that all of life comes through. That's what a, 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 a trunk or a vine does. It gives nutrients and life and sustenance, it gives the ability for fruit to be born off of those branches. When Jesus says that in me you may have peace connected to him abiding in him resting in him trusting in him living life in Christ we may have peace. So what does peace in the trouble in the midst of trouble even look like? We're thinking of all these situations and even in our own lives where we think about trouble and we think about difficulty and we hear this idea that if I if I trust in Christ, if I rest in Christ, if I'm abiding in Him, that peace is accessible to me, what does that even what does that even look like? If we're abiding in Christ, if we're trusting in Christ, we're relying on Him for all of life. Even life in the middle of really difficult, messy, troublesome times. Even when we're sad. Even when we feel like we're in complete despair, we trust in him knowing that he is the one that gives us peace. Paul says it a couple different ways. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 7, he talks about this idea of peace that passes all understanding. That it's this kind of peace that we receive from Christ that it doesn't even make sense And you can probably even think of people, or maybe you are a person like that, that things look really hard and they look really difficult around you or in someone else's life and you're like, man, how are they living the way that they are? How are they being as steady and firm and consistent as they are? If they're following Jesus, that's evidence, can be evidence of the peace of Christ in their lives. Paul also says in in Colossians chapter 3 verse 15, he talks about the peace of Christ ruling our hearts, governing it. Overseeing our hearts, the peace of Christ, trusting in Him. So we see that Jesus is the source of peace. The next thing that we see, and this is um, can, this is uh, affirming and encouraging, and in some ways it's also um, can be a little bit alarming. We see that Jesus says that in Him we may have peace, and then He makes this ne- next statement. We've already kind of camped on this a little bit. He says, "In this world you're going to have trouble. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. That this the trouble in this world is no surprise." to Jesus. Okay, The part of this that is um, is encouraging is that Jesus is saying that that what's happening in life when we look and we're like, how did we end up here? Or how has the world ended in a place that it has? Or how have I ended up in the circumstance that I'm in in my life? Jesus looks at that and it's of zero surprise to him. As a result of of, of separation from God through sin and the condition of the world, our trouble is no surprise to him. Now, the disconcerting part of that can be if God knows my trouble, if Jesus knows that this world is going to be hard, then why doesn't he just snap his fingers and fix it? Like if you know sickness is horrible, if he knows that that, that broken relationships is gonna cause the kind of effect on me that it has, why didn't he just if he knows, just do something. Fix it? What happens with the landscape of trouble in our life, the difficulty that we live in, just on a personal level? It makes the richness of Jesus in the peace of Christ even more visible. It's, it's not elevating our happiness, elevating our ease in life, but it's elevating the sufficiency of Christ. That I can pursue peace, I can chase it, I can go after my happiness and, and try and live an easy, easy life, not filled with difficulty. But in the end, I'm going to end up finding difficulty and not one way, another. It elevates the sufficiency of Christ, that I trust in him, and he he offers peace past our circumstance. James, in uh, chapter 1, this always kind of like rings really loud when I think about the idea of troubles, and your mind may have gone there already. He says, to count it joy when you face tribulation, to count it joy when you face trouble, Because this idea of facing difficulty, it gives the opportunity for sanctification, which is just a big word for meaning uh, shaping us to look like Jesus. Count it joy when we face difficulty, that it may produce in us steadfastness and endurance, that we may trust in Christ and not be lacking a single thing. Jesus says, trouble's going to happen. You're living in it. You experience it. And we all know it in this room this morning. And then the last thing that he says is that he has overcome the world. I've said these things to you that in me, rooted in him, abiding in him, we may have peace. In this world, we're going to have tribulation, we're going to have trouble, we're going to have difficulty, but take heart. Remember Jesus' concern for the heart in in this passage. I have overcome the world. So the question is here, What, what? when Jesus says that he's overcome, what is he saying? When he says, take heart, things are difficult, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The The word that's used in the original language here is this idea of conquering, of victoring, that Jesus has won the war against the world. And I'm not talking about kind of like the church versus the world. I'm talking about all of life encompassing the world, that Jesus has overcome the world. He is in control of it. It is his. Scripture tells us that in Colossians chapter 1 that all things on earth are held together through Christ. They're under his control. They are his. They're his. When Jesus says he has overcome the world, he's affirming that this is this life that I live, it's not mine, it's his. The difficulty that I'm in the midst of, Jesus knows all about it and he's still holding me together. He has overcome even this. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying is that he has overcome, he has won victory against sin, against our separation from God. That Jesus himself has even conquered, he's had victory over death. That once this life is over and I breathe my last breath because of my trust in Christ for forgiveness. That when God looks at me, he looks at me and he sees Jesus just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd always obeyed. That I have the righteousness of Christ. That when I breathe this last breath, that I'm going to step foot into heaven and I'm going to see my King Jesus face to face. He has conquered, he has overcome the world. And there is hope for us in this this morning. There is hope. Paul says in Romans um, chapter 8 that because of Jesus' victory, he says we are more than conquerors through Christ. That that victory that Christ has won, that we are recipients of that victory. That we get to live under the reign of Jesus' victory. In 1 John chapter 5, which is the same John that is writing the Gospel of John, he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who, who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? So as we are in Christ, we experience the victory, the overcoming that Christ has won, that he has won. You have to wonder um, when uh, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, just kind of like let your mind go here for a minute. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they've been together for three years, and they have been through a whole lot together. There's this passage in the Gospels where, um, where there's an account given that, the disciples are, are in a boat, and they're sailing from one side of the sea to the other, and this big storm, it comes up, okay? Things get really hard. They get really, really difficult. And, and they feel, they're at this point of despair. They feel like they are going to die. And where is Jesus? He's taking a nap. Because that's what you do when things are tough, right? Jesus is taking a nap, and they go to him, and they're all kind of like stirred up, and they say, Jesus, don't you even care? We're about to die, and Jesus stands up, and he says, peace be still. And the disciples look at him, and they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves, they obey him? You've got to remember, got to think that as the disciples are hearing this, are they remembering all these experiences where they've seen Jesus' physical overcoming, his ruling over the world? Like people that are lame and can't walk and they're standing and they're leaping. People that can't see and all of a sudden they see colors and and people moving. That, That when they see Jesus overcoming, hear Jesus saying that he has overcome the world, that they've seen this physically with their own eyes. They've been present to it. So what Jesus is doing here is he is pointing out the fact that he is the one that provides peace. He is the one that knows our trouble, that knows our difficulty, and that he has overcome the world. Um, see the problem with this, I think is that we sit here this morning and we 're doing this process of remembering right like we 're here in church this morning, and that 's what the corporate gathering of the believe of believers is it 's this remembering we 're remembering the faithfulness of god we 're remembering the truth of jesus we 're remembering that he is the one who has made peace with God for us and we hear a passage like this, and we we hear Jesus say, "In me, you may have peace that 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 there's going to be trouble in the world, but we should take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. And it's easy for us to listen to these passages and be like, yeah, this is right, this is this is true. Like, Jesus said this, and he meant it, and I can think of a couple ways in my life where maybe even he's done this. But I think the difficult part that we have is that we come here, and we read these passages, and we think about the trouble that we're experiencing in our own lives, but we have this issue of gospel amnesia. We're so forgetful about a truth about the truth of a passage like this. That Jesus has won victory for us. That he desires that we take heart, that we be encouraged, because he has overcome the world. That in him, we can have peace. We forget. We forget the truth that Jesus is with us and that he is for us. Sometimes it is just short-term memory loss. It's just a specific circumstance or situation that we're in. We're following Jesus. We know that he's with us. We know that He he's offered us forgiveness and hope and victory over sin through the power of his spirit and his work on our behalf. But whatever situation we're in, it is so cloudy and it's so dark and it's so even muddy we have a hard time seeing through it that we don't remember this truth. We don't remember the truth that we have peace in Christ, that he has overcome the situation, that he has overcome the world. Or maybe we even have selective memory. This is a phrase that my parents used to use with us as kids all the time. We would only remember when it was convenient for us. We have selective memory. We think, yeah, we, we know the truth of Christ. We know that he is with us. We know that he is for us. We know that we, he gives us peace, that he has overcome the world. And we're so quick to be able to speak that into someone else's life or to someone else's circumstance or someone else's situation but we don't remember that truth for ourselves. We don't hold on to it for whatever situation or circumstance that we are in. Now, when we remember the peace of Christ, he doesn't tell us that he's going to do away with the difficulty, but he does tell us that he's going to be with us in the midst of it. So here's a question. If 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 this is what Christ has done, if he gives us peace, if this is what Jesus has done, he is in control of all of the world, our troubles of no surprise to him, And if he has overcome the world, literally it's his, but we forget it all too often. How do we fight against this gospel amnesia? How do we fight against this idea that that we don't remember the faithfulness of God in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our trouble? I want to just kind of take three ideas, walk through three ideas with you this morning as we bring this to a close. I think one of the first things that we can do is to step back from our situation so think of whatever issue. Whenever I start talking about trouble or difficulty or tribulation, whatever that that first issue was that came to mind for you this morning, it may be it, it may be loneliness, it may be sadness because of the loss of a loved one, it may be a broken relationship, it may be difficulty in, in in your marriage or in relationships. Whatever that trouble, whatever that difficulty is that you're experiencing, maybe it's just direct, downright oppression. Take a step back from that situation take a step back, and, and maybe even ask these four questions. In the midst of this situation, where do I look for for peace? Where do I look for, for peace? Where do I look for peace? If this is the difficulty that I'm in the, in the midst of, and I, I was Holly and I were even talking through this last night before, uh, before we were going to bed, and even this sermon, I can think about situations over the course of the past week where there has been difficulty, there's been trouble, there's been hardship, And if I look at this question and I say, where have I turned for peace? My answer is, well, I've turned to myself. I've turned to ease. I've turned to friends. I've turned to someone or someone else thinking that they will be able to fix it instead of asking for the peace of Christ in the midst of that situation. Where do I look for peace? Next, ask the question, who is in control of my life? In the midst of this trouble, in the midst of difficulty, who is in control? Am I in control? Is someone else in control? Third, what causes me to live in defeat? What causes me to live in defeat in the midst of this situation? Why do I have a hard time turning toward hope and turning away from despair? How do I have a, what do I have a hard time that causes me from being encouraged in my heart, being lifted by the good news of Jesus instead of living in defeat? And then lastly, as I'm stepping back and I'm looking at the situation, what would be good news to me in the midst of this? What is good News. If good news to us in the middle of our situation is just that the difficulty would be taken away, the difficult part of that is that we're going to ask for that same good news but to a different situation just five minutes down the road. What is good news to me that will outlast the situation, that will outlast my difficulty? So we step back, we 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 ask these questions. These are kind of like diagnostic questions in the midst of difficulty. Where do I look for peace? Who is in control of my life? What causes me to live in defeat? And what is good news to me in the midst of this? Now, these questions are not meant to be condemning. We don't look at these questions and answer them and just step back in kind of even shame at the way that we've responded to them. We ask these questions to help assess our hearts. Are we taking heart in Christ? Are we trusting in him? Are we rooted in him in order to have have him and access to the peace that is found in him? Not to feel condemnation, but to step back and assess and look. Next, we, um, we, we step back from the situation. The next is we take heart in the midst of the situation. This is exactly what Jesus was telling his disciples. How do we take heart in the middle of it? Even thinking about some of the things that Holly and I have talked through over the course of the past week. A way that I could have handled it better, because honestly, this morning, confessing to you, um, some of the issues that we dealt with over the course of the past week, I didn't handle well. I answer these questions and I am kind of discouraged. But I understand where I'm coming from, and I could have, first, I could have given the situation over to Christ. Instead of looking to myself to be able to control or manipulate or turn it into what I want to turn it into, give the situation over to Jesus, whatever that is. Instead of owning it like it's yours to fix, to give it to Christ, who is the one who is in control. The next is to turn, as we're taking heart, we turn to Jesus for peace. We turn away from whatever we're relying on. We turn away from whatever we um, we think is going to achieve peace for us. And we turn to Christ. Fourth, we trust him to be in control. This is just what we were talking about in the beginning of, of, of our time together. That as Jesus is in control, and we know this truth because it's from Scripture, that he's in control of all things, even that difficult situation that, that we are in in life. He's in control of that too and trust him to be in control of it. And then lastly, continue to acknowledge that he is in control of all things. So he's in control of the situation and acknowledge moving forward that he is in control of all things. So we look at the situations that we are dealing with in life, whatever that may look like. This morning, we ask for the peace of Christ to rule Jesus tells us that in him there is peace, that in the world there is trouble, there is trial, there's difficulty, but that we should take heart that he, Jesus, has overcome the world and that he gives us his peace. As we look at life today, these words that Jesus was giving his disciples before they even entered into one of the roughest times that they would experience in all of life, we remember this truth for us. We remember this truth, that Jesus is the source of peace, the source of all peace. That our troubles are of no surprise to Christ, but that we can take heart because he has indeed overcome the world. Now there are some of us in this room this morning that we're talking about these things, we're talking about Jesus, and the only place that we have connected this morning is on this idea of of wanting peace in the midst of difficulty that things are hard and I don't want them to be hard. I don't have peace and I want peace. And the reason that you're living in that place is because all of this idea of connecting with Christ and trusting in him, it's a step that you have not taken yet. Now, Jesus is not a band-aid. He's not a fix-it-all. He is the one who reorients all of our lives. And if you're in the room this morning and you're here because you're seeing family on vacation or your neighbor asks you to come, and you're hearing this idea of like, I don't have peace, but I want peace, I live in difficulty, but I don't want to live in difficulty. The answer to our issues, not to fix them, but to reorient and give different perspective on our issue, perspective that will outlast our trouble, is Christ. There are some of us here this morning that at the end of this service, when we have some staff down here at the front, or even the neighbor who's sitting next to you in in, in your pew, in your seat, you need to have that conversation. I don't have peace. I've not trusted in Christ, and I don't know what to do with this. This morning, my encouragement is that you would listen to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is a friend to sinners. Jesus is a friend of those who are in opposition to him. Scripture tells us that while we were mu- messy and muddy in our sin, that that is exactly when Jesus came and gave his life for us, right in the middle of that. Jesus is a friend, for sin- friend to sinners, and that he extends to us his peace through his life through his death, through his resurrection. So those of us that need to embrace that truth for the first time, and there are those of us in this room that we just need, we need to preach the truth of that gospel to ourselves this morning. And if it's not this morning, it may be next week. And if it's not next week, it may be two months from now, to remember the goodness of God in the person of Jesus, that he is the source of peace, that our troubles take him by no surprise. That he has overcome this world. We pray with me. Father, this morning we thank you that you are bigger than our forgetfulness. And there are some of us that are in this room this morning that um, that they are clinging to this truth that even in the midst of things that they don't understand, they are trusting in you for peace, and not just peace so they'll feel better, but peace that makes sense of some of the difficulty that they're going in. God, I pray this morning that we would trust in the peace that comes from Christ, that we would trust in you, a God who is working not only for our good, but ultimately so that your greatness, your ultimate goodness would be known to those who are around us and in this world. This morning, we trust in you, Father. God, for those of us that have walked in here with heavy hearts this morning, that, that are exactly what Jesus is telling us not to be, saying don't let your hearts be troubled, and we walked in these doors with troubled and heavy hearts, God, we pray this morning that you would, uh, that you would speak to us, and we would, we would hear you through your Spirit, asking us, telling us to take heart, because in you we have peace to take heart because you have indeed overcome the world. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for being with us, for being for us. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are our only hope. And we trust in you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus.